0: You're listening to Greater L.A. from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hi there, I'm Steve Chiatekis. Let's head to a park today, sandwiched between the 60 and the 605 in the community of Avocado Heights. There are paths for horses and occasionally a loose chicken from a nearby backyard wanders by. People really love their community, you know, and... We're walking distance from Sam Vasquez's house, about 25 miles east of downtown L.A. He says this semi-rural community of homes and small farms behind chicken wire fences is idyllic. Well, almost idyllic.
1: In spite of the environmental impacts, you know, I wouldn't live anywhere else. I mean, I, I know that for a fact.
0: Environmental impacts because this park is less than a mile from a factory called Quimetco, They're a secondary lead smelter, which means they recycle the lead in things like old car batteries, so it can be reused. This factory does 10 million used car batteries every year. Recycling is good, right? But sadly, the process releases lead into the atmosphere, which then sinks into the soil. In fact, Quimetco's been violating toxic substance regulations for years, And the state officials in charge of stopping them haven't shut it down. Well, now Quameco has reached a settlement with the state that allows them to stay open. And the neighbors like Vasquez, they are not happy. KCRW's Kaylee Wells has the story.
2: This problem actually began in 2015 when state officials say Quameco's spate of pollution violations first started. 27 of them. The violations included a non-functioning leak detection system, They failed to construct an adequate groundwater monitoring system, and they failed to minimize possible hazardous waste releases into the environment. Meredith Williams is the director of California's Department of Toxic Substances Control. She says the agency gave the company a chance to fix their problems, but... Cometco's unresponsiveness was a significant contributing factor to the length of time it took to resolve these issues. Public health agencies say there is no safe level of exposure to lead. A soil sampling in 2016 and 2017 revealed that a third of nearby homes had more lead in the soil than is allowable under California law. And that's according to Quemeco's own report. But in the meantime, residents sometimes get sick, and they blame Quemeco.
0: My mother, she did get cancer, a rare cancer. I can't say it's from that place, but, you know, she did end up passing away from it, and uh, numerous cancers, actually. And also, um, I had three cats that came up with tumors on their body, which I'm also suspecting is from uh, Quimetco.
2: Nick Bukite has lived in Hacienda Heights his whole life, less than a mile from the plant. His neighbor just got diagnosed with cancer, too. Standing in his backyard, you can see the smoke coming from the facility. It's hard to describe the smell. It's subtle, like drying paint.
0: You know, I'm very infuriated, you know, of course. We live right next to it, and I have... My nieces and nephews, my own daughter, you know, and they got to deal with that stuff, too.
2: He says every year he gets a pamphlet in the mail reminding him of his increased cancer risk for living so close to the smelter. His dog just developed another tumor. He says he'd leave if he could, but it'd be too expensive. He's living in the house where he grew up.
0: Also, the kids, they're in place, you know, all that stuff. And I don't want to take them away from it, you know.
2: Air quality officials said in 2016 that thousands of people living near Comeco are at increased cancer risk. Kwimetko declined to do an interview with KCRW, but in a statement, the company disagreed. They say their own assessments have not found any significant risks to living near or working at the facility. The company also cited a cancer cluster study that did not find a cluster surrounding Kwimetko. In a fact sheet, they deny some of the pollution accusations and say they are proud to be the cleanest secondary lead smelter in the world. And so the conflict moved to court, says Williams with the Department of Toxic Substances Control. So DTSE was forced to file a civil complaint in 2018, which in the end resulted in the recent settlement agreement that was announced last December. The settlement requires Qumetco to fix their 27 pollution violations. So far, the state says they've taken care of 25. And in the meantime, the company is allowed to operate while they fix the remaining two. Qumetco also has to pay $2.3 million in penalties. — This agreement has not satisfied residents in Hacienda and Avocado Heights. —
1: I say shut them down. Shut them down. They've been non-compliant for years. —
2: Which they made clear at a community meeting last week. —
3: I understand. I'm asking you a simple question. They are not compliant, and they are running right now. Can you answer that, yes or no? —
2: Excuse me. — Yes or no? — If I may interject. Your I, 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 it's a question. I understand give me, give me, it's your
3: question, okay. but we have, as a department, have given them a timeline in which to come oh, in. Okay, the so department. that's a yes. yes. They're non-compliant, yet you are allowing the operators. Okay.
2: Residents are also angry they didn't learn about the settlement until after the process ended. Why were we not part of the settlement? Adriana Quinones has lived in Hacienda Heights for 23 years. Her sister has cancer, and her nephew died of a rare cancer at 35, despite no family history. We should have been, they should have consulted with us, because it is our lives that are being affected by this. It is not their lives, it's our lives, our children. Also, the fine struck many of them
3: as way too low. 2.3 million is not sufficient for the number of people that have died, the people that have uh, health issues. You know, it, it's, it's a slap on the face. 2.3 million is truly, truly offensive to these
2: communities. As part of the settlement, the state also reduced the severity of some of the violations they'd accused Kometko of committing. And especially galling, Cometco can apply to expand its operations by 25 percent. Sam Vasquez sees it as an environmental injustice. Since he leaves the community's protests against the facility, he uses his mother's maiden name to maintain privacy.
1: You don't see a lead battery smelter in Beverly Hills. You don't see one in Santa Monica. Um, There's a reason for that, you know. So what is it that's different about our community that, you know, the politicians are silent? or you know refuse to talk about this issue, refuse to even address this issue. I think that that says a lot about them and it says a lot about what they think of our community.
4: If there was ever a time when it was appropriate to have a secondary lead smelter in Los Angeles County, that time has long since passed.
2: Angela Johnson Mizaros is the managing attorney at Earth Justice, which represents residents impacted by Quemetco.
4: They're asking for no expansion, figure out a way to remove this facility and clean up its historic contamination. But right now, there's no
2: path to that happening, and a cleanup isn't looking hopeful either.
1: I don't think there's anything radical about us, you know, that live in in these communities, asking for clean air, clean water, and clean soil, you know, for our kids to play in.
2: In the meantime, Residents like Vasquez say they're taking the fight one step at a time, raising awareness, canvassing, putting videos of the factory on social media and creating public pressure to meet their demands. For KCRW, I'm Kaylee Wells.
0: Well, Quometco has not been the only battery recycler in greater L.A.
2: Imagine living next to a factory that spews lead into the air for decades, poisoning
4: your neighborhood, sickening your children.
0: That's a report on KCAL a few years ago about the now closed Exide plant in Vernon. If we look just at lead alone, there were an estimated 3,400 tons of lead that have been emitted from Exide during its long history. That's 7 million
2: pounds of lead that were released to the air.
0: Exide closed in 2015, but its environmental impact continues to be a big issue. On the east side of LA. The cleanup is slow and ongoing, and it's been getting some much needed help.
1: You know, my mother used to say always look for the helpers. Anybody who is coming into a place where there's a tragedy.
0: Because
1: if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope.
0: Prospering Backyards is a community-based organization that's partnered with the Natural History Museum to study lead and other metals in soil surrounding the former Exide plant. It's working to clean up what they can while they advocate for the government to do more. Maru Garcia is a visual artist and Prospering Backyards project lead. Maru, welcome to you.
3: Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for inviting me to your show.
0: Tell us more about what, what y'all are doing in East LA.
3: So, yeah, as you mentioned, um, this this problem has has happened in this area more than 30 years. This plant was expelling uh, fumes to the air, heavy metals, lead and arsenic into the environment, and that was deposited into the ground. And a lot of people are now affected by this. Uh, we are talking about more than 10,000 properties. And yeah, this, this is happening in people's backyards. So as you mentioned, there is a need to do something. And besides what the government is doing, the cleanup that they are, they are performing, we found that there was also a need to offer an alternative way to, to handle this, to remediate ourselves. And that's how this project came. And this is a collaborative scientific research between community scientists, artists, activists, and scientists, and we all want to develop an alternative method for reducing lead exposure. We are also considering the health of the soil and the environment as we are doing this, because um, we don't want just to uh, develop a method that will solve uh, something and then cause more problems. So, yeah, we are trying to do this in a holistic way. And as you mentioned, in the collaboration with the Natural History Museum and the Self-Graphics Gallery.
0: I know there was a recent investigation by the LA Times that found after, you know, so many years, the government's cleanup effort around exile hasn't been very... Successful. So, talk a little bit about what you guys are doing differently to get the cleanup going and to continue it and to and to finish it.
3: Yeah, there's evidence that um, that some of the properties that were already cleaned, they haven't received the proper cleanup. So, we actually from some of the people that requested sampling that received previously cleanup uh, from the government. Uh, We found some higher concentrations of lead even in properties previously cleaned. So, yeah, there is evidence for that. And definitely there is a big uh, need for the government to consider this. But besides that, um, we are currently working on developing a method that um, will mean that anyone can apply this method for remediating their own backyards. And basically, our idea is to um, use minerals we, in our collaboration with the Natural History Museum. Um, there is this researcher from the Minerals Department, Aaron Selesian, Dr. Aaron Selecian, and he's been working a lot with the use of minerals for treating um, impacted soils um, either by radiation or heavy metals. So in this case, we're um, proposing the use of zeolites and zeolites are minerals that have the capacity to encapsulate lead. So the idea is to disperse the zeolites on the surface of the soil and allow the zeolites to capture the lead. So this will help uh, community members to reduce their lead exposure as they are waiting for the cleanup for the government.
0: And, you know, you mentioned 10,000 backyards, 10,000 homes. How many have y'all done? How many backyards have you been able to help clean up?
3: Well, right now we are, um, as I mentioned, this is a research uh, project. So we are in the in the phase of uh, treating 15 community scientists' backyards. So that means that 15 people that actually were the ones that signed up with us for the lead testing out of, of the... Of the results, the 15 uh, community members that had the highest lead levels were invited to participate with us to work as community scientists and to develop these methods together. So we're basically with them installing um, testing sites in their backyards where we are applying zeolites, we're applying zeolites, compost and mulch, and we're having another area that is just going to serve as control. And what we are doing is that we we are going to be working with them for one year, taking samples um, periodically so we can see how lead levels are being reduced as time is passing. The idea is that at the end of the research, we're talking about one year, as I said, uh, we're going to have this method developed and, and the idea is to share with the rest of the community.
0: I mentioned at the top that you're you're a visual artist Maru so so this isn't all science right how, how did you get involved how is art a part of this
3: so um when i arrived here to la i learned about this problem and at the beginning i was wanting to learn a lot about this and to like i started researching and i thought that art could be a way to um start raising awareness and to show what was the problem related specifically with this lead um battery recycling plant that was contaminating the community. So I started with that, but I then thought that it was not enough uh, to to just talk about the problem, but it was needed, but something like an action was needed. So that's how, with this collaboration, um, with cell phone graphics first, that's a gallery. So they are devoted to also support uh, local uh, artists and and with a collaboration also with, with the Natural History Museum, we started to develop the idea. So yeah, it's putting ourselves to action. And of course, every time that we have events, uh, we try to bring those two together, so there is a scientific component, but we um, also add activities are art-based and that people can express themselves through art.
0: What, what kind of
3: events do you all have? Yeah, we have workshops. Actually, last year we organized five workshops named Soil Time. And these were um, five free and open to the public workshops that highlighted the importance of soil. And we invited a range of experts, indigenous healers, scientists, artists, and organizations whose work is related to soil. And in these events, we also led art activities and offered resources that were designed to help participants revealed their relationship with soil.
0: We'll have a link, by the way, at our website of all the ways that you can get in touch with Prospering Backyards, by the way. I want to thank you, Maru Garcia. Prospering Backyards, thanks so much for talking with us and what you're doing over on the east side of L.A. and getting those backyards cleaned up and all that, all those thousands of homes that have been affected.
3: Yeah, exactly. Thank you so much for the invitation. And yeah, I also invite the community, whoever is interested in supporting this, to join us in this uh, healing process for our soil.
0: Coming up, the pandemic had more restaurants in the city of L.A. serving food outside. But now that things are a little better, What's the next step in alfresco dining? Will new rules force some diners back inside? That's ahead on the other side of this.
4: Introducing the KCRW donation car designed to be recycled. This first of its kind vehicle will save you time, space and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars.
0: Back now with Greater L.A., and could L.A. restaurants be going back now to the before times Almost three years ago, can you believe it? Three years ago, shutdowns and stay-at-home orders put a lot of restaurants out of business. But many survived thanks to ordinances like L.A. Alfresco, which allowed them to quickly put up outdoor dining spaces, skipping the paperwork and foregoing fees and the months of approval usually needed. But now the city wants to revert to something closer to how things were before, with restaurant owners perhaps getting stuck with the tab. Mona Holmes is a reporter for Eater LA, a regular here on GLA. Hi, Mona.
4: How you doing, Steve?
0: I'm all right. You and I were talking about this nearly three years ago, right? About yes, we alfresco were. and how will the restaurant survive getting everybody outdoors. You talk to restaurant owners all the time. So talk about the impact that alfresco had on their business. Did it save the LA food scene?
4: It certainly helped. For a number of reasons, this worked for restaurants. You know, delivery is really costly when it comes to third party apps. So dining in is truthfully how they thrive. Um, and also how a neighborhood thrives. So this all fresco program, it took away all of those all of that red tape, all that bureaucracy, the long wait times for approval, the high costs of these permits, and approving them on the spot. I absolutely feel like it it contributed to restaurants being able to stick around and thrive.
0: And you know, some restaurant owners also think this changed the the food scene, the, the, you know, writ large for the better as well. When you go to other countries, like if you go to Europe or Mexico and other places outside the United States, you see a lot of people dining outside where the weather is nice and things like that.
4: You do. And and you're completely right. When you expand seating capacity as a restaurant, you ha- also have the uh, possibility of increasing your revenue. The diners love it. Also, I whenever I'm out and about, I look at the landscape and how it's shifting and you absolutely can feel it when you're driving around Los Angeles or even walking around Los Angeles. The city changed with these parklet and sidewalk dining areas. It and in a city where we barely experienced rain, this is I, I always felt like, Okay, great, this is this is how it's gonna feel like this really thriving, awesome outdoor metropolis where people can sit outside like you said they do in Europe and have a blast just you know enjoying the weather
0: it's not inexpensive though right so when they had to you know build these things or the parklets that go up in and where the parallel spots are out front things like that they had to, they had to actually spend money to accommodate to to be able to seat people outside they say that that was a big financial investment already so what is what does the city want them to do now
4: well they they did spend the a lot, or some spent a little, like as little as 1000 while others spent 30000 or more to put up these outdoor dining areas. And um, it's really short-sighted to suggest that these business, which had the worst time, in my opinion, of any industry during COVID, to tear down these structures and start over, which is basically what the city of Los Angeles is asking them to do. That process has already started in areas like Long Beach and Santa Monica. They're already in the process of doing that. And they want restaurants to remove these spaces, apply for a conditional use permit that can cost up to $20,000. It can also take a year to approve. I already know that um, the departments that make these approvals is already very backed up. So these delays could take even longer. So I'm feeling like it's a little short-sighted here.
0: I mean, is this a money grab by the city? I, I, I hate to say that, but it's like, you know, if we've already got this going and it saved the restaurants or helped to save the restaurants, then the, the why do this?
4: I spoke to a consultant yesterday about asking that very question, and he doesn't think that it is a money grab. He just thinks that they are doing business as usual because this is what they do as government workers, city employees, trying to make sure, you know, their whole goal is to make sure that the public is safe. And in their opinion, they believe that this is the way to do it.
0: There was a public hearing about the proposed ordinance last week. What, what did the restaurant owners have to say?
4: Hmm. Well, <laughs> it was a three-hour hearing, and the Department of Planning hosted it. I don't want to fully blast the department because there are people in there who want to make a difference, but the majority of the comments were from restaurants and community members who kept repeating, why is the city making this so hard? It doesn't have to be this hard over and over again.
0: To which the city said they didn't they didn't they didn't <laughs> no
4: <laughs> no we're going to have to wait there's there's a whole process right now this is only the beginning the ordinance is going to be approved shortly but we're we're going to hear a lot more about this in the near future
0: how arduous is this is it just the city planning department are there are, are we talking about other other departments that have to get involved as well like how many people are you going to have to talk to if you're a restaurant owner have to go through or pay yeah
4: <laughs> potentially a lot um you know this ordinance right now is about zoning and the city planning process right but there's also other departments that are involved with running a restaurant and outdoor seating there's there's building and safety. There's the LA Department, trans- uh, LA department of Transportation because of parking. Uh, there's also the outdoor serving of alcohol. So that includes the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. There's the fire department. It's a lot. And businesses have to navigate this path pretty much on their own.
0: Are there other big cities, Mona, that are doing it better?
4: Yeah, there is. <laughs> I would point to San Francisco. There was one city planner that led the charge. Uh, He got all the departments together in the city of San Francisco, decided to write a manual that's online, and it shows restaurants how to comply with the new ordinance and keep their outdoor dining. And from what I've been told, it's been fairly successful.
0: Mona Holmes, reporter for Eater LA, regular here on Greater LA. Mona, as always, thanks.
4: Thanks for having me, Steve.
0: That's all the time we have for today tomorrow how journalism has changed over the years and what kind of changes have happened in covering black and brown communities in particular that's tomorrow on the show big days ahead in the la art world three shows that bring together artists from here in la and around the nation and world are coming open to the public you'll hear about those as well how are you doing do you have something to tell us a story to share get in touch with us at kcrw.com slash gla grab the podcast too anytime at the website kcrw.com slash greater la or you can get the podcast wherever you get your podcasts just search kcrw greater la juliana mayo Nehar patel Sonia Geis, ray guarna phil richards amy ta carlos ramirez jay Bold, mike vogel and christian bordall all helped assemble this evening's episode i'm steve chitakas thank you for your time and of course your ear